Today we are going to be talking about and reflecting on a very important topic, and that is contemplation. And so today I'd like to focus on what is contemplation. And before we begin, uh, obviously this topic, I mean, we could really spend weeks on this, months. I mean, there are books written about just this very topic of what is contemplation. So what I'm attempting here is obviously not an exhaustive uh, understanding or study of contemplation, but just to provide people with a basic understanding of what is contemplation. And the reason why is because I believe, just from my own experience uh, as a priest and also as a disciple, that this really is the missing piece to Christian life, this reality of contemplation. And why is it missing? It's missing not because God doesn't desire it of souls. It's missing because many Christians are sort of ignorant or unaware of, of this beautiful and profound reality that we call contemplation. So as we begin here, I'd like to read a story that's, that comes to us from the Desert Fathers. And the story is, it contains two of the fathers, Abba Lot and Abba Joseph. And one day, Abba Lot goes to see Abba Joseph. And he says to him, he says, Abba, as far as I can, I say my office, I fast, I pray, I meditate. I live in peace as far as I can. I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched his hands towards heaven. His fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, If you will, you can become all fire. It's kind of a mysterious story. But I believe that this story is really a synopsis of the entire Christian life, right? In the story, we hear mention of praying the divine office. We hear about fasting, about prayer, about meditation, about disciplining our thoughts. All things that an ordinary Christian is familiar with and practices. But what is this fire that Abba Joseph is, is talking about? This fire, I believe, is contemplation. Contemplation is what sets everything ablaze. Pope Paul VI, I believe it was him, he once said that the rosary without contemplation is a body without a soul. And I would just like to extend that a little bit further and say that the Christian life without contemplation 
is a body without a soul. Hence, it is incomplete. And I think in that story from the Desert Fathers, Abelot is like many Christians. They are desiring more. They are desiring depth. They are desiring a greater experience or a greater awareness of God's intimacy with them. I see this everywhere I go. I remember once, many, many, many years ago, before I was even a Franciscan, and I was doing a, I was making a week, a week-long retreat at a Trappist monastery. And I remember as a young man seeing the monks, and they were constantly in the church. And when I would see them, they were simply sitting quietly in God's presence. They didn't come into the chapel with a, an armful of books, or they weren't saying, really, it didn't seem like any prayers. Obviously, they, they had their divine office that they would pray and, and chant together. But what, what I often would do is I would see them just simply sitting quietly in the chapel. And as a young man, that impression really moved me because it revealed to me these deeper aspects of prayer. Now, unfortunately, there seems to be, at least in the church, very little formation in contemplation. So why is that? If this is something that is the, really the missing piece of Christian life, why is there so little formation or why is there so little talk about contemplation in the church? Well, I've, there's five, at least five reasons that I can tell, and there's probably many, many more. But the first, the first reason why I believe there's very little formation in contemplation is because there are few people who are experiencing it, which is not only a tragedy, but really is a, a great scandal. Many sincere people believe that to be a contemplative, I have to become a Buddhist or a Hindu. You know, Christians in the West are, we're known for our works, right? We run hospitals, we run schools, we take care of the poor, we do social services, all of which are important, all of which are beautiful, all of which are necessary. Yet without contemplation, I would say, these works, these services to humanity, which clearly Jesus commands us to do, without contemplation, they never reach their full capacity. Okay? The second reason why there's little formation in contemplation, I believe, is because contemplation is experienced by the individual, not in the language of science, not in the language of logic, and sometimes too, not even in the language of theology, but in the language of love, right? Even theology, which is sometimes defined as the science of God, struggles to articulate it. Perhaps one of the greatest, most prolific writers on the subject of contemplation is St. Is John of the Cross. 
And how does he write about it? He uses poetry. All of his books are really a commentary on his poetry. Because poetry is, is, one, of the, is one of the ways, best ways, to articulate it. But yet even poetry is essentially inadequate. But John uses poetry. He writes these poems, and then all of his books are kind of like this, this commentary on his poems. Third reason. Contemplation, now this is not meant to scare anyone, involves a particular kind of death. And it's only the death that Jesus calls us to. Right? But in this kind of death in contemplation, everything, at least on the surface, seems to fall apart, seems to slip away. Our world gets turned upside down. And we will discuss this in a different, more in more detail in a, another podcast because this is so crucially important. But quite honestly, this is something every one of us would rather read or talk about and not experience. The fourth reason why there's little formation in contemplation. Contemplation is not something that we can create. Contemplation is not something we can do on our own. It's not something that we can just teach someone, like teaching somebody how to pray the rosary, or teaching someone how to do Lexio Divina, or pray the, the Divine Office. There are ways, and we will discuss this also later, that can help dispose us towards contemplation. But ultimately, contemplation is a gift. It is pure gift from God. And the fifth reason is contemplation is profound intimacy. Profound intimacy. Even though we say we desire intimacy, even though we say we desire intimacy with God, most of us, including myself, run away from it. Contemplation is the secrecy, the secret language of lovers. So it should also be important to mention here that when I speak of contemplation, we are not speaking about a particular vocation, right? In the church, we talk about a, uh, a vocation to the contemplative life, which is, usually means a vocation to cloistered life, so becoming a, a cloistered monk or a cloistered nun. That's oftentimes referred to as, as the cont- a vocation to the contemplative life. Well, we're not using it in that context here. Because contemplation is for every one of us, no matter what your vocation is, no matter who you are or where you're from. There's a, a French Benedictine priest in the early 1950s uh, by the name of Father Henry Lassatz. And he once said that to lead a contemplative life 
is nothing else than to live in the actual presence of God, which for a Christian should be as natural as to breathe the air that surrounds him. So contemplation for us who are Christians is actually meant to be very natural. It is in a very real way our inheritance or our birthright, not because of of who we are, but because of who God is and what he desires for us. At this point, it's important for us to ask a question. What is the purpose of the spiritual life? I mean, we could just ask the question, what is the purpose of of life in general? What is the purpose of our life in relationship with God as being disciples of Jesus Christ? Is it, you know, is it merely if you are a religious to keep the schedule? I remember when I, when I first joined the Franciscans, I, I literally thought, well, if we just kept our schedule, if we were very strict with our schedule, our prayer times, how we did everything, we would have no problems. So basically, just keep the schedule, everything will be fine. Well, that doesn't work out so well. Is the purpose of our prayer life to simply pray a certain amount of prayers or to say a certain amount of rosaries every day, to never get distracted during prayer? to become morally perfect, to always say and do the right thing, to always feel what is good and what is holy. Well, of course, none of those things is the essential purpose of the spiritual life. They're all obviously good things. But what is the purpose of the spiritual life? St. Peter says in, in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, he uses a very interesting phrase. He's, he's writing to the early Christians there. And he's reminded them that, that God essentially has given us everything in Christ. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. And he says, the very reason for this gift that is in Christ is so that you and I become partakers of the divine nature that you and I become partakers of the divine nature. And a very interesting phrase. What does that mean to become partakers of the divine nature? Are we really, from what it seems like, called to share in God's life? Fortunately, many of the uh, church, early church fathers and doctors of the church have commented and meditated upon this this reality of this phrase, becoming partakers of the divine nature. And St. Athanasius, commenting on this, says, The Son of God, Jesus Christ, became man so that we might become God. St. Thomas Aquinas, says the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. 
that language is, is very strange to us. We're not used to talking or listening to that kind of discussion that we might become God. Like, what are they referring to here? And what they are referring to is uh, a word that we use particularly more in, in the Eastern Church, but it, it, is, it is just as prevalent in the Western Church. And that word is divinization or deification. And this is what exactly they're referring to. Divinization is this process of transformation of our human nature by divine grace to live the life of God. It is to sum it up in, in two words, becoming God-like. This is what Peter is talking about when he when he exhorts the Christians and reminds them that they are to become partakers of the divine nature. You and I are called to share in God's life. We are called to become God-like. This is the purpose of our life. This is the purpose of our prayer life. This is the purpose of our of our ministry to become God-like, to become divinized, to become partakers of the divine nature. Contemplation, I would argue, is a necessary ingredient for this transformation. Because without contemplation, there cannot be genuine divinization. Right? The saints reveal this to us so clearly. When Mother Teresa would walk into a room, people would start crying, whether they were devout Catholics, uh, Hindus, or, or, or atheists, people were so touched by the presence of Mother Teresa. And why was that? For just from purely a worldly perspective, there was nothing really attractive about her. But when you looked into her eyes, when you heard her speak, when you watched the way she was with people, you were watching Jesus Christ fully alive in another human being. And it was being revealed. It was being manifested through her. She was becoming, and I would say became, God-like. She became divinized. And this is what the saints do. This is how they reveal God to us through their very humanity. They don't deny their humanity they don't repress their humanity, but it all becomes transformed by God's grace. Thomas Merton once said, Catholicism is the taste and the experience of eternal life. And then he says, too often Catholics have believed or they have stopped short at a mere correct and external belief expressed in good moral behavior. 
instead of entering fully into the life of hope and love consummated by union with the invisible God in Christ and in the Spirit, thus fully sharing in the divine nature. So what is he saying? He says, oftentimes we, in some sense, we set the bar way too low. We stop way too early. We think just to be a good Catholic or a good Christian, we just have to obey the commandments and live a good moral life. Obviously, that's very important. But in many ways, that's just the beginning. St. John of the Cross uh, uses this image. He talks about uh, a window and sunlight. And he says that when a window is, is dirty, the sun, the, the light of the rays of the sun, is not permitted sort of the full possibility of light. So it's, the light is somewhat stinted because of the dirt on the window. And he says it is very obvious that there are two things, a dirty window and sunlight. But he says, what happens to that window if that window is cleaned, if that window is, is purified, if, those, if that dirt and if those smudges are removed? He says that the light now shines through that window without any restriction. And what is very interesting, he says that depending on the purity of the window and how clean it is, oftentimes when the window is very clean, all you see is light. You don't even in some sense see the window because it's been so purified, it's been so taken over by the light. All you see is light streaming through. And that I believe is, is a, a perfect image of what a divinized soul looks like. Obviously there's still a window and there's still a light. So there are, there are two different things. We are always going to be ourselves and God is always going to be God. But when we're fully divinized, we are like that pure, pure and clean window in which the light just shines right through us without any obstruction, without any barriers. This is really the call and, and the meaning of our lives. So let's talk about briefly here what contemplation is not. First, contemplation is not a feeling or an emotion. Contemplation transcends sense experience. It is an experience of God that goes much deeper. It goes to the very core of our being. This is why when someone's really experiencing authentic contemplation, that person generally falls into or slips into a deep, deep silence. Because the experience of God, particularly when it's deep, cannot be articulated clearly and coherently. Right? Most of our sense experience can be explained and articulated on some level. 
right? If I'm if I go out to a restaurant and eat really good food, and someone asks me the next day, well, what was the food like there? Well, I can, for the most part, describe it, give this other person somewhat of an idea of how good the food is, what it tasted like. Even a, a moment of consolation in prayer, usually which comes on a, on a sense level, can be described in some fashion. But contemplation is very different. Once again, Thomas Merton says, there is nothing more repellent than a pseudo-scientific definition of the contemplative experience. He says, to describe reactions or feelings in contemplation is to situate contemplation where it is not to be found in the superficial consciousness where it can be observed by reflection. This reflection and this consciousness are part of the external self which dies and is cast aside like a solid garment in the genuine awakening of the contemplative. So in other words, what he's describing here, reminding us of, is that contemplation is operating on this deeper level than just our feelings, just our emotions, or just our thoughts. Which is, in some ways, without obviously degrading these things, they're important, but it is our superficial self. It's not our, our real self. Number two, what contemplation is not. Contemplation is not a new age, new age technique, nor is it a method prayer. You know, one of the characteristic features of the New Age, at least in the way I understand it, is that they believe that certain practices or certain techniques can almost manipulate the divine, right? So just do this and do this and, and you'll experience bliss or, or whatever. That is not at all what we're talking about when we talk about contemplation. Contemplation is sheer gift. The best we can do is dispose ourselves towards it. The Catechism reminds us that it says contemplative prayer is a gift, a grace. It can only be accepted in humility and poverty. That's in the Catechism, paragraph uh, 2713. So, because contemplation is not a technique or not even a method, there is no such thing as turning contemplation on and off. We can't say, okay, I'm going to now just do contemplative prayer. No, actually, contemplative prayer does us. Obviously, yes, we can sit down and maybe dispose ourselves towards it, but if God gives us that grace, it's all His grace. It's total gift. The third thing that contemplation is not. Contemplation is not prayer in the traditional sense. 
Right? St. John Damascene says that prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God or the requesting of good things from God. So there's an emphasis here on one's own action, right? Raising the mind, raising the heart, requesting things of God, all of which is good. But contemplation is God's action in us. It is God praying in us. Contemplation is really the movement from me praying to God praying in us. You know, strictly speaking, contemplation is not the divine office. It's not the rosary. It's not Lectio Divina. All these forms of prayer can lead to contemplation. And they would all, I, I would say, have a contemplative element to them but they are not contemplation in and of themselves. The fourth thing that contemplation is not. Contemplation is not a spiritual trend. Right? Fads or trends are just as common in religious circles as they are in secular society. Right? Certain books, certain retreats, certain pilgrimages can all become sort of the rave in religious circles for a time period. And this is not necessarily bad. It has its place. Could be the movement of God in a particular time or a particular place in a particular community. But once it serves its purpose, it disappears. Contemplation is not like this. In the foreword for the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, which is in many ways a classic on contemplative prayer, this is what the author says. He says, as for those who are worldly gossipers, flatters, the scrupulous, busybodies, and the hypercritical, I would just assume that they never laid eyes on this book. I had no intention of writing for them and prefer that they do not meddle with it. This applies also to the merely curious, educated or not. They may be good people by the standards of the active life, but this book is not suited to their needs. So what's he emphasizing there in very strong language? Contemplation is not a trend. It is a beautiful, pure gift of God. The last thing that contemplation is not. Contemplation is essentially, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, indescribable. You know, in um, one of St. John of the Cross's poems, uh, it's called A Gloss with Spiritual Meaning. He is writing about in this poem this profound experience that he has of God. And his conclusion and sort of the chorus of the poem is when he comes to the time of, of trying to articulate it, he says, I don't know what. He refers to it as I don't know what. This beautiful, uh, deep, transcendent experience of God over and over and over again in the poem, he says, he refers to it as I don't know what. Now, St. John of the Cross is a doctor of the church. He is a master in theology and spirituality and even philosophy. 
and he is reduced to describing the experience of God in deep contemplation as I don't know what. Because our language fails us here. Even my own articulation here of what I'm trying, how I'm trying to describe contemplation is ultimately inadequate. So that's a good place to stop. We will pick it up uh, next time with part two.